This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hammerich. When you hear that our guest today is a smart, progressive, urban-dwelling PhD who's passionate about the impact technology will have on the future of protein, you may assume I mean alternative proteins. Well, you would assume wrong. We have on the show Jesse Hoff. Jesse comes from a family Angus beef farm in upstate New York and has a PhD in animal genomics from the University of Missouri. He's worked for a few biotechnology startups, such as Benson Hill, where he was a computational biologist, but he's now the agrogenomics business development manager at a company called GenCove. GenCove is a genomics company that has a low-pass genome sequencing technology, which they claim is the most efficient solution for genomic discovery. Now, if a lot of that just went over your head, don't worry, you're, you're not alone. But overall, just think uh, 23andMe, but for cows. I had to take about an extra 30 minutes of Jesse's time for him to explain all this to me, starting with Genomics 101, and I'll try to pass on some of the cliff notes here to you. Genomics basically combines biology, genetics, and computer science to give us a more in-depth look at the DNA of a living thing. We often talk about improving agriculture by gathering and analyzing data. Well, when it comes to raising an animal, knowing the DNA of that animal is about as granular of a data point as you can possibly get. Over the past decade or so, more and more livestock producers have been paying to get genetic information on their herds. But these tests that they're using, often called markers or arrays, can only observe a small fraction of the DNA, whereas GenCove uh, can provide a much more complete picture. The cost of getting this DNA sequenced as well is dropping quite dramatically. Genetics has been an important part of animal agriculture pretty much forever, but we've always had to wait and see how an animal translated those genetics into the real world. Now, though, with technology like this, we can identify genetic potential at birth. So why does all this matter? Let's, let's look at an example here. T take the example of a dairy bull. We want a dairy bull that will produce a heifer calf that will end up being a productive cow. Productive meaning milk production. Imagine the time it would take to figure all this out using old methods. You know, raise the bull, breed to a cow, raise the calf, milk the calf, see how it does, and then rinse and repeat. Well, now if we know what genes are associated with something like higher milk production, we can evaluate that on a dairy bull as soon as it's born. This saves time, this saves money, it saves us from having to raise a bunch of bulls that won't have effective offspring because we just need to pick the one that does. So hopefully that provides some context and a picture of why genomics, or the study of mapping genomes, is relevant to agriculture and the future of agriculture. And of course, why GenCove's technology, that we'll be talking about here today a little bit, of providing a whole picture of that DNA can help advance animal ag. So now back to our guest today, Jesse Hoff. 
We talk with Jesse about Jenko's work, how it's helping producers like those in his very family, his own skepticism about lab-grown meats, and a public bet he had with the founder of Just Inc., which used to be Hampton Creek. Make sure you stick around for that. It's very interesting. Jesse won the bet, but uh, has yet to be paid. So uh, stick around for that story. For starters, though, I asked Jesse just to talk a little bit about the genomics work he's doing with GenCove and giving us just a high level sort of what is a phenotype, what is a genotype background as we dive into our discussion. I enjoyed this one. I think you will too. Here's Jesse Hoff. So actually the very interesting thing about animal breeding or or plant breeding for that matter is that there is a distinction and a very formal sort of system for understanding the distinction between a genotype and a phenotype. And of course, we know how to sort of partition what affects a phenotype that that we might see at the production level um, into the genetics of the animal, into their environment, and into sort of random noise. And we often describe that as um, the heritability of a trait, right? So you might have something like a ribeye area that is, uh, say, about 40% heritable, which means that across the population, 40% of the variation that we see is due to genetics as opposed to, you know, environmental factors. When we are choosing bulls, we're not actually trying to predict the phenotype of those bulls, right? What we're trying to capture is the gen- what we call the genetic value or sometimes the breeding value of that bull. And that really describes sort of very purely the genetic component of who they are, right? And, and as you know, that is different in their phenotype, right? So you could just look at the phenotype of a bull, you know, how large they are, or how big they were at birth, or, you know, you could slaughter them and, and measure their ribeye area or, well, you know, but it's often helpful to, to note, you know, if you're thinking about dairy breeding, you can never observe a, a bull's uh, milk production, right? Right. So That would not go so well. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not very feasible. So fundamentally, and this is quite different too from human medicine, we're not trying to predict the phenotype of the individual. Very specifically, what we're trying to measure is their genetic value. And that's actually directly expressed when we look at their offspring, because that's their genetics contribution on average to their offspring's phenotype, which tends to sort of over time and over observation sort of zero out the noise associated with that, right? So it's not really as difficult a challenge as predicting whether or not a human is going to get cancer or whether or not they're going to develop some other kind of chronic disease or you know, grow to a certain height because those things are are highly influenced by the environment. But all we're trying to do with breeding is over time change the genetic quality of the population. And that that's really directly what our models are, are able to do. And that's that's something that the genetic observations that we observe of, of the actual genome are much more easily able to give us than the harder challenge of saying, okay, what's this bull going to be like? Because, you know, on average, there'll be some some error there always. Yeah. Well, talk to us about Genco's entry into the animal ag business, because as you mentioned earlier, they've been a human genomics company and now entering into animal ag. So what's that look like from a practical level, sort of a business standpoint? How, how do you roll that out? What we tried to have tried to do in, in terms of getting this new technology of sequencing in, into the hands of people is frame it up in, in a way where we can help folks get to the current capabilities of the existing technology and make it really as easy as possible. For example, we uh, were working with partners like a, a company 
called uh, GeneSeq, parent company of Neogen. They're in the process now of, of scaling out a, a sequencing capability. And they are, you know, sort of the world leader in, in, in using this current technology, these, these chip genotypes. Um, and so they have terrific relationships with, with a lot of the industry. And we help them get results that are pretty compatible with their existing data sets, as well as giving them essentially 10 to 100 times more genetic data points. So what's been very successful in genotyping has been to come up with these chips that look at about, say, 10 to 50,000 positions in the genome in a targeted and directed way. And that's a very effective way of sort of reducing the overall complexity of a genome into a very targeted set of differences. And that, that makes it sort of an affordable process where uh, an animal breeder, even at the level of a farm, can for under $50, purchase a, a chip and genotype their bull or, or heifer or pig and use that, that assay on a pretty broad swath of the population. And so that's really helped get the cost of, of that genotype analysis down. Our technology looks across the whole genome and samples all of the, the sites that are there sort of randomly and, and more completely and gives back a closer to tens of millions of, of sites um, across the genome that are that are different amongst different members of the population. It's a, I mean, honestly, amazing ecosystem of different types of companies out there that are able to successfully use this data for improving fish, for improving pigs, chickens, what have you. And there's different capabilities, of course, across those different organizations for successfully using that. And so we, we like to be able to help out where we can in streamlining the data analysis. Now, your family has a grass-fed beef operation in New York. Is this something that they would benefit from via, you know, a partnership with like a Neogen? And how would that look from their perspective? Walk us through the, the user experience. What question is leading them to this? Yeah. And what are they going to get? Yeah. So genetic data is already something that has impacted a farm like that. Well, A, they directly used it. But the first way in which that comes down to the users in the industry is, you can't really buy uh, elite bulls in, in dairy or beef in, in the U.S. anymore in many breeds that, are, that have not been genotyped. And so that's, that's a pretty ubiquitous technology. And so that's had an impact on the improvement in, in the genetic quality of the best of these populations and has sort of accelerated the, the progress for, for example, in, in beef cattle, uh, improving things like feed efficiency and marbling and fertility yeah, and growth rate. And so the starting point of, of genetic improvement on a farm like that is making sure that we're using the best AI sires available and, and also folks have purchased uh, bulls at, at bull sales from nearby seed stock producers. And even at a, a local auction like that, um, those bulls are, are genotyped so that, again, when you're looking at sort of a, a farm with a bunch of close cousin bulls, you can have the the pick of the litter based on their genotype data without ever having seen a calf be produced by that bull and have an understanding of how they're going to help you, which, you know, really matters actually. So, so our operation, we sell everything, all the calves and all of the finished animals that, that are produced on that farm, we get custom processed and then are selling um, directly at farmer's markets in New York City. I've been doing that for a little over 10 years now, actually close to 11 this summer. And so in doing so, you know, it's really important that we're able to get a consistent and high quality product and that we're able to, in incorporating a new bull into our breeding program or retaining females, not, not dealing with some low performing animals on a regular basis, 
using that genetic data really takes quite a bit of, of risk out of the process of buying a bull or using new semen from a, a new AI stud or, or retaining heifers in, in our population as well. So we don't need surprises of, of open animals. We don't need surprises of animals that don't perform well on, on grass and don't give us a, a high quality meat product at the end of, at the end of their life cycle. And so that's the starting point where genetics is used, but, but even directly on a farm like that, we've been genotyping heifers on, on the farm, I think probably started in 2015. And so, you know, every year there's a crop of female calves that, that comes out of the farm. I guess we probably retain about 30 to 40% of them to be retained in the herd. And uh, we're making that retainment decision now based on a genotype test of our full female calf crop. So, you know, in the coming years, hopefully sooner rather than later, the test that drives that decision will be based on sequencing as, as opposed to uh, the existing markers that we've been using before. And so, so from the workflow of my parents who are, who are operating this farm and, and the, the folks on their staff, you know, they're still collecting a hair sample or a tissue sample or a blood sample and, and submitting that to the same lab at, at Neogen or Zoetis that they, they have been before. But what happens at the other end might be a different uh, molecular process. For your family, what difference will they see between using the marker technology versus using this low-pass sequencing technology? Sure. So, so one of the things that is great about sequencing is that it can be quite affordable and not necessarily going to be directly more affordable in, in all contexts, but you know, because we're able to generate that information more efficiently, uh, we, we can get to some pretty compelling price points. But also, we've been able to get a great running start in, in animal genetics and breeding by defining these, these marker panels and, and helping us understand an elite and a core population in a, in a well-defined way. But we have a really just a massive amount, and I think to many people, a really a surprising amount of diversity in the populations that we use in breeding, and they, they are in all kinds of different environments. Um, and so ultimately, what we want to be able to do is move to a position where we can use these data sets to, in a really powerful way, understand more and more about how these genetics drive the performance of these individual animals out on production. And, you know, we're developing these massive data sets where, you know, for example, the Angus Association and, and our herd is, is, is mostly an Angus one and has quite a few registered Angus animals. They're over oh, close to 800,000 genotypes now. And the more of the phenotype data is available on that, the more completely and comprehensively we can understand how genetics drives each of the traits that's important in our herd. And so, you know, the initial release with sequencing will we'll, we'll kind of cover the same sets of genes that's on the existing chip. But as we observe more and more of them, that's going to allow us to do a much better job of, of understanding all of the traits that we look at. So, you know, we have something like feed efficiency, which is difficult to measure, takes special equipment where you have to be set up to observe how much an individual animal is eating and, and weigh them and, you know, and potentially even understand how that looks differently across different types of diets and different environments. And, you know, there's not an endless amount of, of that data available. And so the more comprehensively we can understand the genome of that individual, the better we'll be able to predict in our herd, where you might not be observing that, what the performance of those animals are. So we're not really here to promise that we're going to provide some sort of miracle of, of a revolution because, you know, it's really a slow process of continuous improvement of these models. And it takes a lot of data and a lot of coordination across the industry to do. 
Um, and one of the cool things about it too, I think, especially sort of in this, this ag tech audience that they might be listening here, there's all kinds of um, really exciting new data sets that are, we're able to generate now about our livestock populations and you know, machine vision technologies and interesting wearable devices and all of those create phenotypes that, that can be modeled by our genetics. And you know, that's actually one of the, the, the common things that's, that's said in the industry that in the age of the genotype, the phenotype is king. And so the more of these phenotypes that you have, the more opportunity there is to sort of potentially identify a unique set of genetic locations that are influencing those phenotypes that matter to you that aren't necessarily well captured by the existing genetic data sets that we have today. So that's, you know, something that I think we're seeing expanding all the time. And we want to be able to, you know, build out, I think, the most powerful data that we can to, to get to a point where genetics is as, as useful as it, as it can be. And a single genetic test, you know, speaks in some way to all of the phenotypes that you might have observed in the population. Very cool. Well, I've got a couple more questions on that, but I don't want to run out of time. I want to get to maybe some of the more existential questions here about sure. you are a very uh, data-driven, obviously scientifically trained, open-minded guy, I would say, but certainly I would also say have been to put it lightly, a skeptic of protein alternatives and people saying that uh, the future of protein is not growing animals, is sure. either plant-based sure. or cell-grown. Tell us, well, maybe a good place to set the stage here. Talk to us about this Twitter bet that was made years ago. Sure, sure. You know, I, I think it was two thousand summer of 2017 as part of a story that, you know, many of the folks listening here are, are, are well familiar with. There's, there's a growing interest in various types of alternative proteins. Uh, one of the most important ones, uh, a story that you've been exploring on this podcast a lot, is, is lab-grown meat. And a company at the time called Hampton Creek, now called Just Foods, is known most widely for their eggless mayo product. They announced that they were transitioning into developing a lab-grown meat product. And they announced at the time that it was going to be on the market by the end of 2018. I was a little dubious of this claim. And... Uh, I tweeted out that uh, I'd be willing to bet that it, it wouldn't happen. And, and the CEO of the company, a guy named Josh Tetrick, uh, responded by saying that he'd be willing to take the bet to the tune of $10,000. I was still a grad student at the time. So, you know, that was a little uh, rich for my blood. But uh, we worked it back to, to, to 500 to charity of, of the winner's choice. And I'm saddened to report that uh, they didn't meet the terms of the bet and they, they've yet to pay up. And I do need to, and I think, I can use this as an opportunity to uh, to complete uh, a donation of my own to the charity that I had selected, which was Heifer International, I think a terrific organization. And, and I can put up some proof of that and you can put that in the show notes if you like. It's June 29, 2017. Yep. You quote tweet uh, something from AgFunder and AgFunder says Hampton Creek aims at new market growing meat. And it has an article and, and then you quote tweet it and say, I will take all bets reg regarded stated goal of price 30% over similar meat by 2019. Seriously, people. And you you send a link to uh, longbets.org, which I guess is where you could take a bet where the money goes to charity. Yeah. And he does respond. Yeah, this is Josh Tetrick uh, here from Hampton Creek, which is now just the Just Company or something. Uh, yeah. Just, just, just Foods. Just Foods. Just, yeah, Just Foods. Which is very difficult to Google, by the way. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but he does say $10,000 to charity question mark. And then you reply, I'll meet you at 500. Think long now can set up the terms. And, and, uh, yeah, and then we had some, we had some emails offline about that. And, uh, yeah, he, he was, he was, he was pretty game at the time. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I will say, I mean, it it's, doesn't seem like that long ago, but I've worked at a couple different startups since that point after graduating from my PhD at the University of Missouri or leaving my PhD at the University of Missouri in 2017. And I can appreciate the ambition that it takes. And at the same time, you know, it was an extraordinary claim because, you know, certainly at that time, nobody was talking publicly about anything under, you know, $1,000 a pound or maybe even $500 a pound being ready to be commercially viable. Um, and they were jumping in saying they were going to get down to, I don't know, 30% above. Yeah. Right. Which is like what, $4 a pound for chicken or something like that. Right. So at best. And well, they didn't make it. <laughs> right. We don't have Josh here, but I'm sure proponents of that industry would say, yeah, you're right. It's taking a little bit longer, but it's still happening. Sure. Um, what, what do you say to that? Well, I don't know. I, there, there's a number of ways you can, you can think about that. One of them that's really fascinating to me is this is a technology that to me seems quite a bit more complicated than the process of say making a extruded pea protein into a beyond burger and yet that you know has reached scale and has consumed millions uh, billions of dollars in capital the very commercially successful on a certain level maybe not the enterprise level beyond foods which has the beyond burger which is a simply a pea product um, and that still sells for about 10 or $11 a pound. And fundamentally, there's really actually been an, even a broader paradox just of traditional veggie burgers of their market position and market pricing being similar to or above animal products, which are for better or for worse. And I think uh, different folks in different parts of the industry would feel somewhat differently about the pricing position of, of animal products, but they're very efficient and they're hard to, to compete with. You know, the other thing is for, for a variety of reasons, the the real cost of many of our animal source proteins are also continuing to drive down. So it's very easy to kind of look at a new technology, especially if it has a tinge of Silicon Valley, actually like I've done earlier in this, this discussion and say, well, this is the kind of thing that's just going to see consistent drops in pricing in perpetuity, like mm -hmm. computer chips or, or cell phones or something like that. Biology tends to be a little bit more complicated or quite a bit more complicated. And there's been really nothing in the way of actual deployment of these systems at the commercial scale. And that tends to be what really starts driving actual cost improvements of, of things in a broader sort of economic analysis of, of innovation and, and how the price of things tends to come down. You know, there's a lot of skunk works out there. There's tens, if not hundreds, of, uh, hundreds, easily hundreds of millions of capital being poured into this but very little actual in the way of, of production scale improvement. And, and even once it gets there, you know, I guess my perspective is there's a lot of incredibly sophisticated biological things that, that a chicken, for example, does in the process of taking a slurry of carbohydrates and turning it into edible and delicious protein. And it's very difficult to abstract all of that away and make it into this like magical and self-replicating system. The strengths and the robustness of, of direct agriculture is that we're able to sort of continuously improve these complex biological systems without necessarily understanding them at, at a deep engineering level. But the challenge that you have in something like lab-based meats is that you really do have to understand quite a bit of what's going on. And, you know, it's still going to need 
the ability to defend itself from, from bacteria. It's still going to need to process all kinds of different proteins um, and make all kinds of different higher functional cell structures in order to have the texture and flavor and growth properties of meat tissue. And, you know, the overhead on a chicken or, or even a pig is, is, is pretty low. The versatility and the robustness of animal agriculture, which is not always sustainably performed, to be sure, but it's something that we do, again, have a lot of tools to improve in a lot of different ways. And, and taking this, this highly complex system that we really don't have any actual practical experience of, deploying it in the next 10 or 15 years to make a major impact on our food system is not something that I expect will be very easy. You know, there are real challenges that the, the rest of the world sees that, that, that our industry needs to be proactive about, about trying to address. I guess that's how I feel about it anyway, um, as okay. an individual. And uh, yeah. I think we're doing a lot of that. I think we can be more focused in, in, in doing that as well. And uh, I'm excited to see what we're, what we're able to do in the next 10 years. Let's talk about that. Obviously, you're putting your money where your mouth is in, in where you're at in terms of genetic improvements through yeah. genomics. Uh, what other big breakthroughs do you see coming for animal agriculture that people will say, you know, this industry isn't done innovating? Not all of the innovation is on the alternative side. Sure. We can get outside of sort of my area of direct expertise. And I think there's there's a lot of great folks that you could have on to talk about this, but there is a broad suite of, of technologies that are capable of addressing some of the, the big questions like emissions from a nutritional perspective or from a practices that can be adopted. I, there's been a lot of uh, attention just in the last couple of months around some, some feed additives on the, on the cattle side that are seemingly having a big impact on methane emissions from, from beef and dairy cattle. And I think though, to, to sort of come back to you know, the core of what the genetics industry is doing, we're very capable of pursuing progress in a given area as long as sort of the incentives are clear and the relative you know, importance of given outcome is clear in a breeding program. Um, there's a lot of great work being done on things like greenhouse gas emissions in many different animal agriculture contexts from the genetics community. I think recently there's been a launch uh, in New Zealand of an evaluation in a breeding program of the greenhouse gas efficiency of, of sheep production. That's something actually that, that is uh, supported by genetic data in, in their model as well, actual genotype data. Um, so that's, you know, they're able to observe emissions on a small number of sheep across their population and use that information as, as part of their ongoing breeding goals. And again, that's something that allows them to make sort of steady and incremental progress towards the goal of specifically, you know, uh, improving the sustainability of, of their production scheme. That's something that, you know, comes as a result of, of other improvements that we've seen in improving animal production through breeding, whether it's increasing the size of a beef animal, increasing their feed efficiency, you know, the, these tend to um, be often, and not always, but often linked with sort of the, the, the sustainability and the, the, the carbon or, or methane efficiency of, of the production system. Things like, you know, addressing fertility and improving health, two of the things that, that I looked at in, in my PhD work, are major drivers of, of the overall system for greenhouse gas efficiency. Because, you know, if, if an animal doesn't successfully breed or uh, if, it, if it comes down with some sort of infectious disease, you know, that makes a major impact on welfare. It makes an impact on the sustainability of the system. And, you know, we have and do make steady progress on, on a lot of those, those areas. 
And I, I think there's a lot more opportunity for specific goal setting by the industry and, and by other stakeholders around those issues. There's a lot of great research projects going on to, to characterize the genetics of these issues in a lot of different animal systems in a lot of different ways and drive that into the industry for breeding goals. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that we're excited to be a part of at, at GenCove is, is supporting projects like that. What about genetically engineered livestock and poultry? Yeah, it's a great and very interesting set of opportunities. And, and I think it's also worth just connecting back to um, one of the longer term opportunities that comes along with, with a technology like GenCove's more indirectly, but a big picture idea and, and concept and tool that we have available to us in the world now is technologies like CRISPR that I think you might have talked about on the show before. Where No, no, I've been meaning to, but we really haven't got into it much. Okay. Well, long story short, we have a number of technologies out there that give us pretty precise and impressive control over the editing of changing specific genes and bases of the genome to make yeah, very precise changes, essentially, in a, in a reasonably directed way. It's not actually always quite as simple as that makes it sound. But nonetheless, you know, we, we have some really just profoundly powerful tools, actually. And, you know, I, I got to observe some of that directly during my PhD at the University of Missouri, where there was some work on a project that's become one of the more prominent global projects for, for animal genome editing, a disease in, in the, the swine industry, PERS, that there's been quite a bit of work on developing genetically modified animals. And the distinction between genetic modification and and gene editing is that this is something that similar designations in in the crop world as well. Genetic modification involves sort of uh, often sort of the wholesale introduction of a new gene, a functional unit into a species. So for example, Bt corn, you know, involves the the insertion of the Bt protein, which originally derives from bacteria into corn crop to express that gene. Gene editing is more of the specific rewriting of sort of the existing code that's there. Um, so there was quite a bit of work to, to develop a biotech pig that could resist PERS disease. And there had been years of effort with previous technologies to try and develop a, a pig that, that um, could resist this disease, which is causes hundreds of millions of losses whenever it flares up in, in the swine industry in North America or Europe, and is just very difficult to, to control and, and is responsible for a lot of additional biosecurity protocols and that sort of thing. And there's some approaches for, for preventing it and, and treating it, but is, is often very difficult to control. And I saw a presentation, I'll, I'll never forget, I think it was my first semester in grad school from a researcher there named Randy Prather, and he gave a long presentation about an attempt they had made to develop a purse-resistant pig. And I realized about halfway through the presentation that it wasn't going to have a happy ending. And, and they had spent years building these models and making GMO pigs at the time was not something that the USDA was funding because we don't have any clear regulatory pathway towards, towards producing genetically modified animals in the US, which is kind of a, a longer and different story. Um, so they had kind of been pursuing this on their own without without a ton of, of the usual sources of external funding and spent a lot of time at it. And here he was presenting this, and it, it was kind of a, a bit of a setback, a failure. And uh, they had tried a particular approach, and it didn't work. That was 2012, 2013 or so, I guess. Less than 18 months later, they were presenting on an approach they had taken, focusing on a different gene, this time using this technology called CRISPR, 
and I don't remember the exact year where that came out, but that was pretty soon after it was launched. And it's really a revolution in our ability to modify and, and target the, the genome of, of plants and animals and, and humans as well, actually, and, and all kinds of other critters. And they had been able to implement, uh, they may have been started when I saw the first presentation or not, but nonetheless, on an extremely tight time frame, implement and test the development of a, a knockout of a specific gene. It's called CD163. And by doing so, they've made animals that at this point have proven to be pretty conclusively resistant to, to PERS. The virus is, is not able to infect the host, and they're in the, in the process of being commercialized and deregulated right now. It faces a different regulatory framework than the plant gene editing processes do because animal gene editing and genetic modification is regulated by the FDA as opposed to the USDA, which is responsible for plants, which has a, a complex history. But So there's a different regulatory framework and one that potentially is going to be unified, but uh, still still remains a bit complex. Nonetheless, you know, I mean, that's a powerful technology and, and we have some challenges out there, things like there's a ton of different diseases, but then you have a situation like uh, African swine fever, uh, which is for the past couple of years now been causing a major challenge in, in Asia and China in particular, uh, and losses of 10, 20, 30% of the herd. We don't have a cookbook right now that would tell us exactly how to create an animal that uh, is resistant to that disease using gene editing. But one of the opportunities with more comprehensive genomic information that we're able to get through sequencing is the ability to potentially understand opportunities through the natural diversity of these populations where we might be able to use a technology like CRISPR to, you know, continue to validate and explore or even, you know, develop novel variation that's we've been clued into based on what we see in existing standing genetic diversity. So, you know, there's really a profound opportunity for sort of understanding biology that's driven by these data sets that we generate when we genotype all these animals and, and phenotype them as well. And, you know, the big opportunities there, or some of the big opportunities there that I think people get excited about involve things like disease resistance, where unlike a lot of our other traits, you know, single genes, a small handful of genes can have a, a massive impact on phenotype. And, and there's kinds of performance that you're not really necessarily able to get in any other way other than, than changing the genome of the animal. Thanks again so much to Jesse Hoff for being on the show. I hope this gives you a glimpse of the future of animal agriculture and why smart and talented people like Jesse are so passionate about this industry. I personally learned quite a bit on this one, which is always an extra bonus for me. I also want to give a shout out here to Helping Hands, in case you might have missed it on last week's episode. I know a lot of you, like myself, are in a privileged position to potentially help others in our community during COVID-19. It can be difficult, though, to know where to look for opportunities to help. But chances are someone nearby is in need and also doesn't know where to look. Helping Hands takes the guesswork out of the equation. It's a free, localized technology built specifically for COVID-19. The platform allows users to support the most vulnerable in our rural communities. So if you are healthy and can help, volunteer to deliver supplies to someone who may need them. If you know someone who is high risk or needs special assistance, share Helping Hands with them to get them the support they need. To share that with them, go to helpinghands.community. So instead of .com, it's .community, helpinghands.community for more information.
All right. Thanks so much, as always, for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I appreciate you tuning in with me here every week. We'll be back next week with another story of Ag Innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.